jump out of that state and that habit of procrastination because it's a form of self-sabotage I recognize that but also yeah. it's a negative that I want to change so how if someone's finding themselves procrastinating how do you flip that um I, I think I'd want to unpack the procrastination and say um you know what what is holding you back and Maybe it's a fear. Maybe it's a fear, if it's something for yourself, it's a fear of being successful or a fear of failing. The fear um, of judgment that comes back to the bullying at school, Jan, but that's a whole nother therapy session. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> We've got another app. Today's guest is a neuropsychotherapist who is internationally recognised for her work in behaviour change and for creating an executive state identification mapping tool that maps the social neural network of your brain. She is the author of a successful book, The Many Parts of You, and she has used this knowledge to develop an amazing leadership program, Brain Potential Leadership Powered by Neuroscience. Episode 96, Jan Sky. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jan. I'm so excited about having you on because I chat to so many people that have personal stories about overcoming adversity and and how they've done it. But I'm actually really fascinated by the scientific way of people and if there's a scientific reason why people can overcome adversity. And that is your area of expertise. You're a neuroscience scientist. (laughs) (laughs) I should say it properly if I'm introducing you. Um, and we've been introduced by a mutual friend, Dawn, who I've had um, on the podcast, Dawn McIntyre. Absolutely delightful. If everyone hasn't listened to that one, that is the pain monster. Um, I cry in that episode, so you can go and listen to me cry. Um, it's a so fabulous yeah, so... one too, Fiona. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jan. So uh, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. And can I just say... I'm what's called a neuropsychotherapist. So to all the neuroscientists out there, um, I, I should put that straight. I'm a neuropsychotherapist. So neuro being I understand the brain and psychotherapist, I put the application of my knowledge into therapy as well as into everyday life and helping people be, live better lives. So does that mean that you are a, a, a neuroscientist that's gone into the therapy side of things or are they very different? No, it, it, I, I am a, a psychotherapist, first mm-hmm. off. I studied what's called applied neuroscience, so the understanding the brain, its function, um, the nervous system and, and everything related to the brain and function and behaviour you know, a corresponding behaviour. But because it's applied neuroscience, I, it's, I'm not doing research into neuroscience. I work with the application of it in the leadership field, in the workplace, and in therapeutic situations as well, in clinical roles. Okay, perfect. Well, you are just the right person to have this conversation with. <laughs> and my first question is, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people with very differing backgrounds. I've spoken to people that have ex-veterans um, from general military to special forces. I've spoken to ex-police officers. Um, I've spoken to people that have had family members murdered, uh, 
assault uh, survivors, burn victims, like it's just the full full gamut, um, mm-hmm. cancer uh, survivors. And I'm wondering whether or not there's an innate genetic uh, difference between people that are more resilient or is it a life experience and something that can be taught and learned? Uh, George, you can learn how to be resilient. Is that what you're saying? Yes, or is it predefined by genetics? No, it's it can be either or. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let me just first say that anyone who has has experienced any of the trauma-like situations that you just referred to, um, there's a fabulous book by Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps a Score, and mm. that's exactly true. So when we've experienced any trauma in our life, uh, it, it, first of all, it's held, the memory of it or the memory of the emotion is held quite quite succinctly in the brain and also in the body. So we can be that uh, that type of, that person can be easily re-triggered or re-traumatised as they move through their life. When we talk about genetic uh, does it come through the genes? Uh, there's a lot of research that's gone into the fact that uh, a mum or a parent, mum or dad, who perhaps was very depressive, um, the child grows up living with a parent who's depressed all the time. So they learn the behaviours. Uh, they learn how to behave around it. doesn't mean that they will absolutely... Um, become depressed as the adult as well but they they would have a greater chance because they've already learned that's like the environment that they've already learned that behavior um and so often it is so hang can on, become Jan- generational let me just clarify that so to me depression is a chemical imbalance but you're saying mm-hmm. that it can be also a learned behavior well, what the child who lived with the parent who was depressed would be missing out on would be a lot of the fun times. So they're not learning how to experience laughter, fun, and all those things. So they're not necessarily producing those what we call the happiness chemicals as a child living a, a, a regular type lifestyle would experience. So then as they grow up, they become uh, quite okay with the fact that they're not getting their dopamine or serotonin hits. Or So it's no, it normalises it for them. It normalises that state yes. as their baseline. Yes, that's right. Right. Okay. Mm. So it, it's environmental and therefore, well, that's not really gen- genetic. That's more environmental again. It, it, Yes, but then it can then it can change with epigenetics, it can change the DNA that then is passed down to their children and their children. Wow. So the the research articles are on um generational behavior, generational conditions, generational mental health disorders. So that's why, that's why I suppose in a very layman's terms and it's very crude, he's saying when you have a dysfunctional messed up childhood, it really affects you as an adult. 
it can, yes. Yeah. So if someone... Sorry, go ahead. No, I don't want to say always. It can. Okay. Sorry. I think that's an important (laughs) distinction. I always do broad brushes. I'm glad that you keep pulling me up on that, Jan. So if someone has a learned childhood situation and that's their new baseline or someone's gone through or recognises that they have uh, or that they're struggling in areas that other people are more resilient to, how can you, is there a way that people can build that resilience? Yes, there absolutely is. Um, if, we, if we go back to the child that's grown up in a, a dis, let's call it a dysfunctional family environment, um they can they can build resilience many ways and and often they only need that one strong person in their life and it could be a football coach it could be a school teacher it could be uh, a person from the church it could be another family member that's outside of their environment and that can often be the key factor that can pull them out and into that beautiful adult that they want to live and and uh, help and and they will recognize oh this is the lifestyle i want to live i want to have a family that stays together i want to create my own i will work i won't stay at home i will when i work i will earn money and i'll save money and you know the what we might term the regular way of living um, they they've seen it through the eyes of someone else but resilience in general terms is something that it's a holistic approach to um, it's not just about the mind and the body at mind it's about the mind and the body reacting together so what you feed your brain with in terms of um, language dialogue uh, how you how you speak how you make requests rather than demands, et cetera, et cetera, and then what you feed your body in terms of the right types of food, giving it exercise, quality sleep, and a whole range of things like that, and downtime for your brain, the proper downtime, you know, having those uh, six to eight hours sleep a night, that type of thing, all of those things will naturally build resilience because the brain chemicals will be produced at the the level that they should. Um, And you will feel as a person, just as a human, you will feel a whole lot better anyway. I think if we think of the last three years that where we've been through COVID, COVID times, Mm. and the government was in place setting up um, restrictions that, in different states in Australia. I was in Melbourne, Jan. I was in Melbourne. Oh, oh we're going to talk. This is a fiery oh. topic for Whoa. me, Jan. <laughs> Let's just say I sold up and I'm not going to live in Victoria again because a certain yeah. political party got back into power. <laughs> uh, come up to Queensland. We don't do anything like that up here. <laughs> Dawn was, well, Dawn was trying to convince me to move up to Queensland. I think it's a little too hot for me up there. But, um, yeah, 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 I was world's most severe lockdown um city in the world apart from oh. china i would imagine yeah well that's well, the that's uh, this title yes yeah and you know think about what what did it cause you by way of differences to your everyday life so your patterns of behavior were changed weren't mm. they 
Mm, so we had, are you asking me to give you examples? If you want to, yes, please. So we weren't allowed out within 5Ks and if we were, it was a very much a, um, the police were very, uh, from a, how do I say this, um, considering how um, litigious certain political parties are being on individuals. Um, from a society's point of view, there was a dramatic shift of mentality against the uh, towards the police, whereas the police had always been there for a serve and protect mentality. It was very much meant to be, and I think um, in the doctrine, it's an apolitical situation that very much seemed and appeared to change. Uh, it was certainly... Um, Arrest first, ask questions later. We had the um, so you had to justify why you're going out of the house. If it was to collect food or for a medical within that five k's, that's only the reasons why you're allowed out mm. um, was for uh, medical purposes or to get food. Pretty much, um, we had a nine p.m. curfew, which for most of us we there was no it has come out there was no scientific reason behind that. Um, but I had helicopters flying over my house from 9pm to 1am every night oh, um, to enforce that curfew. So I felt very, like, I was just thinking about all the Vietnam vets, you know, because they were very low helicopters flying over. Oh, it really felt like you're in a full militarised um, situation. And it gave me very bad uh, social anxiety as well because mm -hmm. the messaging was, if you go out and if you get COVID, you're going to die. That was the messaging. Mm -hmm. um, and it was certainly, uh, well, that was the messaging that I perceived anyway. I can only talk about my own personal situation. Um, and, I mean, I had a conversation with a doctor about it and, and she told me how, um, and I've spoken about this before on the podcast, how the how the media had had beaten up the situation in regards to it, but she was sitting there in full PPE having this conversation with me. Mm -hmm. um, so the messaging was very, oh, it's not that bad, but then she's sitting there in full PPE across from mm -hmm. me. I'm talking full gown, full, like, gloves, yeah. like, ma like everything, Boots face shield, all. mask. Yeah. Like, she looked like she was about to walk into the operating theatre. Um, so, yeah, very... Um, it moved from a very support-based support the police to a fear-based situation um, of the police. So not a great time. Was but I'm like out, Jan. Yes, you've been released. You're out of it. <laughs> it's like your freedom being taken away. And we, we Australia is known as the lucky country, but the Victorians weren't or Melbourneites weren't living in the lucky country. And when you went and, and when you and also your safety, safety is our baseline. And so you didn't feel safe. So prior to that, when everyone was fully functional, going about their day, going about their work, doing what they were doing, they've got a lot of like a whole of brain activity going on. They've got healthy neurons firing um, electrical currents down those pathways. When you go into fear factor, as you did, it becomes a lot more isolated in your brain, although one part of your brain doesn't functions solely on its own but you you go into the limbic region of your brain which is in the back of your brain back mid brain um and there's a little guy in there the amygdala which is the 
the CEO of all emotional content. So you you were fear, and uh, he he or she hung on to that fear for you, and so your fear was reinforced on a nightly basis with those helicopters flying over, with the police who who turned from the the person you trusted on the street to the person you feared on the street that you weren't you you were fearful of even speaking to them so then your body takes on a different um activation you 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 almost go into sympathetic activation which is um the sympathetic activation you become very agita- agitated frantic uh, mobilized and it's the region of your brain, of you know, not your brain, the region in your body where that ha- occurs is around your chest to your belly button area. So you probably felt that tightness and that breathing that was slow and shallow. Um, that's just so part how... of the polyvagal theory that we might be able to talk about a little further. Oh, yes, let's talk about it. But I think that this can be also... Um... Like it's not just people that went through the lockdowns in Melbourne. I mean, anybody that's having that situation um, reinforced, continually reinforced, reinforced is, is yes. in that situation. So, what can people if if that part of the brain, the limbic system, is the limb, limbic system? Is that what you said? Limbic, yes. Limbic um, has taken over. How do you? And that's continually reinforced. And for us, it was over two and a half years, mm-hmm. how do you break that? So if you're someone that's been in a um, a policing situation, they've had a career in it or if they've been ex-military or whatever it might be, trauma-based, and they find that, that they recognise, okay, yes, I have those symptoms of that, that area of the brain that's taken over as a default. How do I – what can I do to break myself out of that? Well, like I said before, it doesn't. it's not the only – functioning part of the brain because we still have thoughts coming in and uh, then the rational part of the brain or what we call the smart part of the region of the brain which is the prefrontal cortex sits in behind your forehead and down the back of your eyes it's learning to grab your thoughts about I'm so scared I'm so scared to go well just hang on a minute am I safe in this moment where am I Am I properly clothed? Am I got? Am I properly fed? You know, challenging your thoughts, grabbing your thoughts—that's one way of doing it. But also developing some good um, routines on a daily basis. And I don't think any of this—if we go back to the COVID and the Melbourne situation—we were told to stay indoors, but then we weren't given any hints or tips on what we could do like perhaps spend 15 minutes in doing some exercise inside. Uh, make sure that when you get your food delivered that it's healthy food, not chips and crackers and chocolates and things like that. To um, keep journaling, journal what's going on for you on a daily basis. Ask yourself at the end of the day, was that a productive day for me? What could I do differently tomorrow to make me feel a whole lot better? Because we still have our feelings, we still have our thoughts, um, and it's challenging the the firings that are coming from that uh, limbic region, challenging the thoughts and feelings that are associated with them, saying, how can I change them right now? And will this be a situation that will pass? And I guess a little bit of optimism will always help. 
So you mentioned food and I wanted to, and exercise, and I want to touch on both of those. Let's for, talk about food in, initially. Um, and I apologise to everyone. I'm sitting in a caravan park because regular listeners will know I'm van lifing around Australia and they've decided to mow around the site. So that is the background noise that you can hear and I apologise. I'll try and take out as much of it as I can in post-edit, but um, I don't think I'm going to be able to take out all of it. But anyway, so that's just a little explanation. Back to the diet. The gut is very much now recognised. It used to be a little bit woo-woo back in the day, but now it is very much recognised as the second brain. What's the scientific reason in regards to why what we eat affects our mood and affects us mentally to such a degree? Great. To answer that, I want to introduce you to one of the major nerves called the vagus nerve that runs from the brain stem right through the, out the body, and, and vagus means tributary. So as it runs through, it has tributaries that pass through every major organ of your body, including your gut, which is your entire intestinal region. Why the similarity, why they call it the second brain, um, is really, I think, a very layman's term. But the reason behind it is because there are neurons in the vagus nerve that send messages back up to the brain. So we've discovered more recently that the brain isn't the only part that fires neurons and it's because of this vagus nerve, which is a tenth of 12 major nerves that come from the brain stem and pass through our body. So in saying that, uh, messages will go both ways, brain to body, body to brain, via this nerve and it's the theory behind is the polyvagal theory so if we're going to feed our body in stressful situations with what our body sometimes craves which could be sugary things or savory things or alcohol or as opposed to water or whatever um, obviously it's going to upset our central nervous system or our autonomic nervous system because it's going to go in our mouth down our esophagus into the stomach that sits um, around breast area, chest area, and then go through the, the the that long tube, which is your intestinal tract, and into the the large intestine at the bottom. This I always say them the wrong way around. The thick one that we large intestine, from. large yes. intestine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short one. <laughs> get the large and the small wrong. Of all the things I get wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, so of course it's going to upset our whole body, isn't it? Because we've then got why... food in there. That's mm-hmm. rubbish. That's rubbish That's food. Rubbish. And not giving yeah. us any. Okay. But then why and when we're stressed or upset or in an emotional state or hormonal for women, Yes. If the body recognizes that nutritious food is better for our mental health, why does it sabotage us and crave chocolate and crap when we're in an emotional state? Is it just trying to get a, a short-term dopamine hit? Like, why do we? Like, why do I want chocolate, Jan? Is what I'm trying to say. Why is chocolate and ice cream a crutch? <laughs> 
Well, let's go back to stress and what goes on when you're stressed. <laughs> I'll give you a brain body example from a neuroscience perspective. Okay. Um, when you're stressed, they measure your HPA levels. That They measure that HPA, what they call the axis. The, the H stands for the hypothalamus, and it's a, a, a little character in our brain that's like like the general manager of your organisation, knows a lot, knows a lot about what's going on, doesn't always know the um, the ground floor people, but, you know, general as general managers do. General manager gives a message, quick, outside stress, internal stress, sends that message down to the pituitary, which is like the frontline manager. And the frontline manager knows all the factory floor workers, which is the A for adrenals, and these little adrenal glands sit on top of your kidneys. So the message is stress, external, internal, quick, fix it. The frontline manager, which is the pituitaries, they send messages down to the adrenals, and those poor little adrenals, like little nightcaps on top of your kidneys, are working overtime. So they produce... Adrenaline, which makes you go, <laughs> and cortisol. And too much cortisol in your brain will give you brain fog, which causes you to not be rational, let's say, not be able to process and go, just give me the chocolate because that's all I want. So calming down your nervous system calming down that sympathetic region that's very agitated at this stage and got all this stuff going on calming it down through either mindfulness breath work meditation or if you're a really active person get out and go for a run now that you can in melbourne get out and go for that run (laughs) i'm sitting Um, on the new south wales coast jan i'm well and truly out of melbourne (laughs) and um when you come back after exerting some physical activity, you, you hopefully will have down regulated a whole lot of stuff that's going on, and you can go or just sit and have some water. Breath, breath work is one of the easiest things to take control over, but it's one of the the first things we forget to do. Why do doctors, when people come in and say, so I have a mate of mine. Um, after the lockdown, got put on, and this sounds like I'm asking for a friend, it's not me, um, got put on antidepressants. So he, at no stage did the doctor initially test hormones or adrenal fatigue or anything like that. He was just put on antidepressants. Now, for those of you that's never been on antidepressants or don't know anything about them, it's you can't just stop them. It's a process to get mm. off them. Um he has since been diagnosed with low testosterone, so obviously that then affects your hormones and stuff. Why mm. is it not a standard understanding from doctors and a standard process of check check hormone and cortisol cortisol levels before we step into the big pharma? Yeah, I'm not really sure that I I have a, a direct answer for that. I guess it depends on the doctor. Mm. Um, so shit doctor shit practices is that what you say Jan (laughs) (laughs) I have a a, working with a client at the moment who's experienced some trauma in the workplace and 
frequents the GP and now it's been a few months and still not until this date and I say good on the doctor because I'm on the doctor's side right at this moment have knowing the case history of this person has the doctor prescribed any antidepressants um some help some medication to help him sleep uh, which is fine because the body needs to sleep we do a lot of the the brain and the body um, rejuvenate when we're sleeping, but no antidepressant. And I actually, uh, he's he's not listening, and I haven't said any names at all. Um, I think he wants them. And the doctor's going, hang on, buddy, you're not depressed. There's lots of things you can do. You're working with your your therapist. You. Well, that's good. That's a good doctor. What should people ask if they suspect that it's maybe hormones and adrenal fatigue? What should they be going in and asking their doctor? How many how many people know that it's adrenal fatigue or hormonal? I think people perhaps just go in saying, I'm stressed and this is what happened to me in the workplace or this is what's going on in my family life. And the doctor who's not at the counsellor, isn't in a position to ask too many questions, makes a calculated decision on um, whether they they need something to help or not. But there's a lot more doctors today who take a holistic approach. Mm. I don't want to denigrate doctors at all. Who take a holistic approach and they will do blood tests. They'll check hormone levels. Um, they will put them on a mental or a healthcare plan, not a mental, just a healthcare plan, which will link them with a psychologist. Um, and and by the way, if if someone is on medication for depression or anxiety or anything like that, you don't just take the pills. You talk no. to someone professional. Yeah. So. If your cortisol levels are high, and mm-hmm. so therefore it's adrenal fatigue. An indication there... of you. Okay, thank you. I love this correction. Um, <laughs> is there a way that you can lower it? Is it just that mindfulness and the meditation and the exercise, or is there other ways that you can lower that cortisol level? There's some natural remedies you can take. If you've got a great health food um, store in your area go there'll be naturopaths in there go and talk to the naturopaths you can just buy over the counter it's not called adrenal fatigue but some natural remedies um, often when we're stressed too we're lacking in vitamin b now the vitamin b12 will be depleted so we could you know start taking that remembering too that it's not just internal we've got to look at the external situation and say, what of that external situation can I change, move away from, um, alter? What do I have control over? And that's when we we look at your lo- lo- locus of control, which is um, let's imagine two circles drawn on a piece of paper, one really big one that matches the, the, the sides of it, the circumference of it touches the outer edge, and a really small one in the middle. Now, for so circle right of down, influence, circle of con- concern. That's right. Yeah, control. Yeah. 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 
Mm. And what we have control over is only the things we can fit into the little circle in the middle. And that little circle in the middle is our thoughts, our behaviours, our feelings, our dialogue, our attitude towards things. It's all about us. Mm. Everything else outside, which is external, um, are things we have no control over. And the funny thing is we worry more and spend a lot of time in conversation about all those things in that outer circle. I'm travelling around Australia at the moment. Oh, the cost of petrol, it's just beyond me. And what about the traffic on the road? We've got to, we've got to plan our trip so we're not there. And this small town I'm in, I'm not going to be able to get the thing. You know, it's all of that's outside of our control. What can we control about that? Can you talk about more the benefit and the interaction with that the vagus nerve and um, resilience and how we can turn off the parasympathetic? Para, the sympathetic. See, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Did I get that right? No. Yeah, the, the sympathetic is the agitated state. The parasympathetic okay. is just a word that's cut. It's like um, it comes in and goes, come on, calm down. You're going to be okay. That's para. It's kind of runs in paradigm. So where do you want to live every day? You want to live in what's called ventral vagal. Now, I, I'm i going to uh, borrow from Deb Dana, who worked with Stephen Porges, and they developed what was called the polyvagal theory. So it's about the poly being multiple, vagal, vagus nerve, and the theory behind it. And what I'd like you to imagine and the listeners to imagine is a small ladder, a small ladder, and this ladder is going to start at the top of your head. That's the top of the ladder, and it goes all the way down to your torso, the bottom of your torso. So we're legless at this point. We've just got a ladder that runs through our body. The top of the ladder, the top part of the ladder, is your neck upwards. That's ventral vagal. And when you're there, you're, you feel safe, you feel social, you feel engaged. Um, you know, the, the world's a pretty good place to be in. It's, it's a nice way to live your daily life, the top of the ladder. So it's all functioning, head's going well, you're putting good food in your mouth, happy smiley face. Everything's going well. Something might happen in a nanosecond that sends you down into sympathetic. Now, sympathetic on, we're going to the middle of the ladder now, and it's from the top of your chest down to your belly button. And that's the sympathetic activation where you become, now, whatever it might be, like a loud bang. We go, <gasps> or it might be, um, in the workplace, it could be that you get yelled at by a supervisor or um, you read a, an, an email that sets you off and you become mobilised and a bit agitated and a, a little bit frantic. So when I'm talking about this region, down to your belly button, chest to belly button, that's when your breathing is impacted. So it's probably short, shallow, low, and um, you've you've got... You know, all the stuff in your body is either the internals inside are, are kind of churning around, going into your upper intestine, that small intestine, which is a big long one. 
and you're feeling very agitated, like the world's not a nice place to be in. It's like everyone's against me right now uh, and you're feeling anxious, very irritated. Now, you can go from this middle part by just uh, being sensible, let's say, about the situation. Let me read that email again. Let me read it and try and get the right tone to it. Or that supervisor had no right to do that. I'm going to take things, handle things in my own way and I'll book a meeting and have a talk to let him or her know how that made me feel. Or the the big bang outside, you can go, oh, gosh, it was just the dump truck I forgot it was coming by today why did it make me feel so agitated so you can bring yourself back up to the top of the ladder the tricky thing is if you don't spend time being rational using your smart brain doing some breathing exercises um, grounding yourself bringing going for a run even if you're an active person I'm not don't want to talk meditation to people who that would be the last thing in the world they'd contemplate because they've got active bodies. Running is is mindful as well. Um, oh, I didn't realise that it was. I would have thought that it would have been activating a different because it's energy. I would have thought that, that would have energy. been a different. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. But some people have this energy that they have to expel, and if they're that style of person when they run to expel their agitated state, um, they can be mindful by even counting their steps, like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So it keeps them focused on what they're doing. Um, that, so they're introducing that, that expelling of energy as well as being mindful. Okay. But if you spend too much time here, you can drop down to the bottom of the ladder. And remember, it's from your belly button down to the, the lower torso area, around to, down to your pelvic type region there. That's when you become numb and collapsed and shut down. And that's called dorsal vagal activation. And that's when, you know, you, it's like you're buried under a big, big heavy load. The world's not a nice place. So if you're too relaxed, you you end up in this place. If you do too no, much no, work, no. no, not too relaxed. If you don't do any of the things in right. sympathetic to bring you back up to ventral vagal and you stay okay. so agitated and mm-hmm. it it will become overwhelmed mm-hmm. and it will become shut down. And that's depressive type symptoms there. You still get out of it. You can still move yourself back up. You can do, depending, it's not been a lifetime thing. It's just this situation that's occurred that's brought you down there. Um, And you can still get out of it just with maybe talking to people, uh, journaling, uh, making a decision that I've been here for a couple of days now. I'm going to give myself till lunchtime, you know, setting some little boundaries around yourself or time frames um talking to somebody who's un- has an unbiased opinion is one of the best things you can do obviously like a therapist counselor a lot of workplace if it's a workplace situation a lot of workplaces have eaps that people can connect with or going to a gp so how do you stay 
How do you stay, I don't know, I don't like using the word normal, but how do you stay in a state that you're not too far into? Because it sounds like if you, there's all these three different areas that you can go into and if you stay in each area too long, then that's not great. So how do you stay in a state that's, in, um, you know, in inverted commas, normal, that you're not sort of delving into each of the, one of these three areas for too long and therefore it becoming a negative? Yeah. Um, ideally, we want to live in ventral vagal where we've got all things functioning well. We've got our brain function, we've got our body function, we're happy, we're relaxed, we're satisfied with our relationships, we're satisfied with them. Ideally, but we're humans living in this life, this world that is, and anything can happen. So dropping down to sympathetic isn't, I don't want to say, it's not a bad thing. It's a natural thing to do. We don't want to stay there too long. We need to have what I call self-awareness. But self-awareness is the key to change. And if we're aware that we've got this agitation going on, we've got to say, hang on a minute, what can I do about it? Do I switch off? Do I go outside and walk around the house, the office, the block? Um, what What is it that I can do to calm to bring parasympathetic activation in, to calm this sympathetic nervous region. And I suppose it's regardless. Yeah, okay. And that's different to mindfulness. Oh, uh, yes. Mindfulness is an activity that you choose to do. Mm-hmm. Self-awareness is more self-reflection. Yes. Okay. I feel this going on. My heart is racing. I'll explode if I don't do something about it. Is environmental factors of where we live, city compared to country, does that have a direct impact in regards to our bodies and therefore our mood? And I'm talking about when you're in the city, you've got uh, electromagnetic stuff going on, you've got more Wi-Fi, you've got more cell signals, you know, the, all the stuff that's invisible that our bodies are being bombarded with. Does that directly inf- influence our mental state? Absolutely, it does. Environment will influence our mental state on any given occasion. We might live in the city and function well in the city because that's what we're used to, irrespective of what our bodies are being invaded with but uh, and but escape to the country for the weekend or to the beach and it will it will tune us back into um well I, I, I want to say it's like that sea change that tree change it's but it's it's something we can do to bring us back to basics and then that's Monday what- morning Back but that's more thing. that's more um a mental reset. I'm talking more about the physical demands of the environment that we're on subcon like that we can't see affecting our mental health. Mm. Um and I would probably ask the question, what can we do about that? I, I'm Well, that's a fair point. I'm not um I'm not across all of the electromagnetic yeah. 
um, and the environmental things. I just know instinctively, as you probably do and all the listeners do, where we where I feel best. Is there a scientific reason of why being at the beach and water in particular is so good for our mental health? I guess so good for some people. So, uh, and a lot of people are just drawn to water. I love the water. I live on a peninsula. I've got water either end of my street. Heaven help me if this tsunami comes. Or but just walking along the water with my dog every morning is is grounding for me. It frees my brain. Um, and then I'm ready to start a really busy day every day. It's just a wonderful thing to do. That's me. Other people aren't drawn to water at all. They're drawn to the bush or they're drawn to other envir- natural environmental factors that help with their psychic, their well-being, their, um, how they feel. Being in tune with that, how we feel is really important and that comes back to self-awareness because self-awareness is the key to change. Um, I spent most of my life in Sydney, hideously hectic, busy, um, being consciously aware if I went to this networking group or this function of what I had to wear and to coming for the last seven and a half years I've lived on the Gold Coast and um, it's a lot more chilled I'm, I'm, out. I'm calmer. I'm a lot more productive. Um, you can't see me, but I've got shorts and T-shirt on <laughs> and sandals on my feet. I enjoy the warm weather. It's just a very relaxed. And when I just said in that dialogue there about being more productive, you are more productive when you're calm. You mentioned the importance of being self-aware. What happens if you're in a dialogue with, working with, relationship with, friends with somebody that you go, oh, my God, you're really non-self-aware? Like you mentioned you have to be self-aware for change. I think it's important for change. What is one to do if, I mean, you can't make anyone else make decisions for themselves like that's their own journey that they have to go on so what can what can you do to protect yourself or what can you do if you go wow you just don't want to change you are so non-self-aware of where you're at I think avoid those situations or avoid really those people really and some of them might be family members yeah which makes it a bit challenging doesn't it? yeah yeah so just complete Uh, avoidance do you tell them would you tell Would them? Would you going to avoid them? Yeah. Uh, Instead of um, ghosting them, do you think that's a healthier way of saying, I just don't think, you know? I just think it depends on the relationship you've got with them. You know, I, I, I personally, I have a friend who does, isn't self-aware um, and I just limit my time. Mm. I, I still want, I, this friend is gorgeous, would do anything for you, but self-awareness isn't at the top. Or is it that they're self they're sh- oh, now I'm saying agenda, they're self-aware, um, but don't see a need to change. Yeah, I know I'm like that, but it's all right, don't worry. That's just me. Is there anything wrong with somebody thinking like that though? 
Oh. I mean, it may not be good for you as in an interaction, but is that okay for them if that's their mentality? Oh, yes. They they are who they are. They are, are. yeah. Yeah. So if they're comfortable with who they are, then it doesn't really matter if they're non-self-aware. It only matters to us interacting them because we're not comfortable with that. Yes, that's right. It does only matter to us. Mm. And okay. we and we then we go back to that circle of what we can change and what we can't change. It's outside of our control. So we develop some uh, tips and skills to deal with the situation when we're in it. You mentioned the book, um, The Body Keeps Score. You've also, which is not your book, but you yeah. have also written a book, The Many Parts of You. What led you to, to wanting to, to put pen to paper and, and write a book? Oh, goodness, that happened so many years ago now. It was in 2008, seven or eight, I think. I did a diploma of what what's called ego state therapy. And ego states is identifying the different states that we're in. Like um, I feel like I'm in a pretty good state at the moment. I'm feeling confident. I'm enjoying. So my state at the moment is a, one of enjoyment. Um state I could be in an angry state I could be in a, a a sad state for whatever reason so it's the the ego state therapy is saying you know it's not just there's a, a what was that song called ego is not a dirty word I, I love it. it it's about many ego states that we have so um we go through in and out different states all the time um and I from doing that diploma, I recognized that we could actually in a from a clinical therapeutic perspective, I could help a client unpack those states. So if they had a, a situation they were trying to change, maybe well, let's take this, they had to deliver a presentation in the workplace. I would unpack all of the states, both inhibitive and supportive that were going to help that person give that presentation on that day. Now, in that situation, we might map out quite a few inhibitive states, like there could be fear, a state of fear. There could be um, a, a discomfort one, a state of feeling so discomfort. There might be two or three that would be unsupportive of that person. But there, and we call them inhibitive. There might be one state of confident, and that state of confident isn't only there when that person's going to stand up and present, but you're confident in many situations. Now, what I developed was um, a process, process called ESI, which stood for executive state identification. So we didn't just look at the state of confident and go, okay. Yeah, that's good. We unpacked it and I mapped it by going, when you're confident, what are you thinking, feeling, um, any, any past experiences? What can we do to unpack this state of confidence? So here we've got, and I would draw it like just a circle on the paper and inside the circle write all the things the client would say. I feel taller. Um, I've done this before, I I speak clearly, you know, all the things that represent confidence. And I do that for each one of the states, the fear, the 
the uncertainty, whatever else was mapped out. And then um, when the client could see this on a piece of paper, how then can we bring confidence to the forefront, make it executive on that day you give your presentation? And, and it's conversational dialogue that just goes on then about, well, you know, I can do all my preparation. If I know I've prepared my presentation, I'll be confident. If I know this, I knew that. And just some self-talk when before you go up to give that presentation, what would the self-talk look like? What would it sound like? And they would come up with these a methodology to help them deliver in a confident way. So that was what my book was on. And I, at the time, I'd been doing a, a lot of work with prison inmates. My little tagline was I spent 15 years in and out of jail, but I was actually working there and they let me out at the end of each day. And I started trialling it on them, you know, just when we talked during the day. Now, what's the state you're in? Can you think of the state you're in when you committed that crime? And do you have any other states of being? And uh, mainly I was working with men, so, you know, then, oh, yes, I'm a father, I'm a partner, I'm a worker when they're on the outside. Okay, tell me about those states. So I wrote this little book, and it is only a little book, called The Many Parts of You, Understanding the Puzzle of Your Behaviour. And just at the same time, I was actually invited to Finland to give a presentation at an NLP conference, and I had my book. And I took it over, and I'm quite excited about it, and I presented it on the day, sold many copies, and there was a publisher in the audience who came up to me afterwards and said, um, I've got a copy of your book. I've had a little flick through it. When I read it, how would you feel about it being published into Finnish? Well, that didn't take long to answer that question so I have a book the many parts of you that is both in Finnish for any Finnish or people in the audience and also in English and fantastic. it is available online <laughs> fantastic if someone's feeling you're talking about the different states and, and everything and we've talked about self-awareness if you feel stuck what do you think the most important things someone can do to create momentum again stuck um, they're just stuck they're stuck in a pattern of behavior they're stuck in a situation what will we talk about Fiona? more patterns of behavior patterns of behavior yeah okay. they're feeling stagnant in their life all right so good that takes me back to the brain <laughs> and this is where i relate um the ESI tool too. So when you're stuck, you're stuck in, in a pattern of behaviour. Our brain is like a highway of neural pathways. There's little neurons and one little neuron um, in its little, little sac has all these tributaries going off it, like the octopus with its eight legs, except it might have more than eight. And when that neuron um, is activated, it fires down some of those pathways. Now, a cluster of neural pathways will come together and that will form a pattern of behaviour. And if I go back to my book, 
that's a state of behavior, behavior state. So that behavior could be that that per that let's say that person who has behavior that we feel we can't cope with, and they've suddenly recognized that they need to make a change. There's, they've got this activation of the, the pathways they're stuck in. This is the way I talk. This is the way I behave. This is the way I act. And so when they go to do something, the, the firings light up in the neurons and they fire, it shoots down those pathways and they act this way. But here they've just, over here, they've just discovered, this is what I really want to be. I want to be quieter, calmer, Um not jump in to people's conversations while they're talking. Um, I want to be more relaxed. So knowing that, they have to start practicing that type of behavior. Just knowing and doing once or twice doesn't mean you've got it because remember we've got these neural pathways in another part of the brain that's got that unwanted behavior in. But the more you practice, the stronger, thicker, longer these pathways will become and you can change in time. But you can also be triggered and flick back to the old way of behaving. There's... You, you talked about behaviour, obviously, in, in the feeling stuck and I've said a, and heard a lot about procrastination being... Um, the avoidance of stress. There's a lot that's on social media in regards to the avoidance of stress. I think Mel Robbins says it. Do you agree with that? And how do we get into non-procrastination habits? So to give you an example, Jan, when I work for somebody else, I'm very goal-orientated. I've always had KPIs. I've always been sales-orientated. I smash my targets all the time. When it comes for stuff that I want to do and I want to achieve, I procrastinate like all anything. I'm terrible. And I like, how does one jump out of that state and that habit of procrastination? Because it's a form of self sabotage. I recognize that. But also, yeah. it's a negative that I want to change. So, how, if someone's finding themselves procrastinating, how do you flip that? Um, I, I think I'd want to unpack the procrastination and say, um, you know, what what is holding you back? And maybe it's a fear. Maybe it's a fear, if it's something for yourself, it's a fear of being successful or a fear of failing. It's a fear um, of judgment. It comes back to the bullying at school jam, but that's a whole nother therapy session. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> We've got another hour? <laughs> oh, we've got as much time as you need. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say it is, it's a fear of that being, uh, being judged. Mm. Um uh, and then, then what would it feel like if I wasn't judged? What would what would I be like if I knew that whatever I did right now I wouldn't be judged about? And if you can really identify that feeling, you can start. Well, what now do I have to do? You can start some steps to move forward. There's a great little video on YouTube. There's probably many, but I, I recommend this to many of my clients. It's called the Backward Brain Bicycle. And there's this guy who's, uh, I think he's an engineer, 
And the guys in the workshop, they change the cog on the, the on the bit of the bike that goes up to the handlebars so that when they tur- he turns the handlebars to the right, the wheel turns to the left. When he turns it to the left, the wheel goes to the right. So he has to learn how to ride this bike. And it's quite a funny little video, and it talks about how long it takes him to learn this new behaviour. And just to not take away from the video that I hope that you might have a look at, because it only goes for about three minutes, it's great. It takes him eight months. He has a little boy who's about seven years of age, and he gets the guys in the workshop to do the same to his little bike. It takes him about seven days to learn this new. And this comes back to neuroplasticity. Our brains are more open and that they talk about neuroplasticity like plastic, malleable. Our brains are more open to receive and accept and try new behaviours when we're younger. When we're past 25, which is mature brain, you know, ageing brain, if you're over 25, Fiona, I am, but let's not talk about aging brain. This is going to de- that's just going to be depressing, yeah. I think, Chair. <laughs> so, what I was going to say, we're more set in our ways, yes, so we're more yes. fixed down those pathways. Oh, I can't do it. Someone will judge me. Oh, I don't want to do it that way. I've always done it this way. So we we either have to go. I'll give it a go and try it if we're past twenty five, and just see what happens. Understanding so, it may take us a little bit longer than the little child, but we can do it. So once you've unpacked, obviously, the reason behind everyone's going to be different for the procrastination, so then it's identifying what they are and then challenging yourself to create new. It's the whole, oh, it can't teach old dogs new tricks things, right? But you can. It just takes a little bit longer. Yeah. And I suppose then that's then ignoring everybody else in your life that's had that has a voice in regards to saying that you can't do it or don't bother or whatever. And that's the mm. be careful who you surround yourself argument as well. Surround yourself sure. with argument. But what are the things that, what are the things that we can actively do to create or facilitate if we've got this aging brain past 25, a more malleable neuroplastic plasticity brain to help create and be open to new um, things and challenges and pathways and all that sort of bizzo. Be prepared to want to try new things. Okay. Be prepared that if you try something new and you fail, but you really want to do it, get up and do it again. Um, don't limit yourself. I I was a late bloomer. My first time at university was at age 59. I love I that. Did... My, my grandmother was the same. I'm not going to age you in her category. She's a lot older than you, Jen. She was the same. <laughs> and I did health science, speci- sciences specialising in sexual health. Um, and then later on, I I was introduced to neuroscience. So at age seventy one, I graduated with applied graduated. I can't even say the word, can I? With applied neuroscience at age seventy one. Can I say that you look like you're forty? Oh, thank you. You're beautiful. Hon- but honestly, like, I would not have picked that. Well, that was in 2020. Oh, wow. Lordy, yeah. you've got good genes. 
<laughs> oh, your skincare routine. I want it. <laughs> Stay calm. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm working on it, Jen. I'm van laughing around Australia. I'm trying to remove all things that are that are calming in my life. Um, yeah. So anyway, neuroplasticity. We've digressed. Yes. Yes. So be prepared. You know, think think about habits that we've got. The single habit of um, cleaning our teeth. We always pick the toothbrush up in our dominant hand. We put the paste on. We brush away. Tonight, try swap around. Toothbrush in non-dominant hand, paste on the other. Now, you might end up with toothpaste where you don't really want to have it, but you're you're firing different pathways in your brain. You're getting some brain activation, and that's exciting. Don't have to try that forever, but if you really wanted to be ambidextrous with tooth, the the task of tooth brushing, is that right? <laughs> try it. Give it a go, and that's what it feels like when you try something new. But did anyone die in the process? No, you just got toothpaste all over your face. So is this why they talk about, when I say they, you know, you hear it on um, social media and, and whatnot, and they t- there's there's a lot of talk about don't do the habits of where you are in life at the moment. Do the habits of what you think will you will have when you're successful or will you that you'll be doing. Yeah. So you're sort of creating those new habits and neuropathways to achieve subconsciously what you want yes it's like you know behaving the way that you would if you were already there Mm. but how do you know what you're gonna do when you're already there if you're not there yet (laughs) what is it you want to do do you know what that is first of all I guess um (laughs) what does success look like for you (laughs) All right, so we've got to ask ourselves some existential questions. Yeah. Talk to me about um, and explain to me, there's there's a lot of discussion about sleep, particularly at the moment, the seven to eight hours you need to get. Mm-hmm. I've heard recently the reason why you shouldn't hit the snooze button is because the sleep cycle is 75 minutes. So therefore, if you go back to sleep for 15 minutes or half an hour, it interrupts that sleep cycle. I'd be interested to hear that, your opinion on that. Yeah. Um, why is sleep and quality sleep so important to the restorative process and our brain and hormones and all that sort of stuff? Um, we produce BDHD, which helps the neuro, neural function in our brain when we have good quality sleep. And if we don't produce that BDHD, then our brain, the, the neurons will just die off. So, I mean, we've got thousands of millions and millions and trillions of them, but just the same, we don't want to lose any. And that's what happens when we don't have good quality sleep. But when we're asleep, there's a lot of activity that goes in, on in our brain. Um, first of all, let me explain a sleep cycle. You're awake and everyone has a different time frame as to what, how long it takes them to drop into sleep. When we drop into sleep, it's like going down a stairwell. We go down four levels until we get to deep sleep. And then once we're in deep sleep, we come back up again. And we don't wake up, but we come back up. And that's when we're dreaming around that coming towards a wake state. And then we drop, start dropping back down again 
till we get to deep sleep. Now, one of those cycles is about 90, 90 minutes, and we should have about four or five of them a night. So, because what goes on, not only about producing that chemical I spoke about, but also there's a, a little character called the hippocampus, and and she becomes like the file manager at night and she gets rid of all the stuff we don't need, all those, you know, we take on board things through our five senses, what we see, what we smell, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch throughout the day constantly, the blue galah that sat on the fence. Do we need to keep that? No, dump it. But it'll also store things into our long-term memory. And when we don't have information that's needed to be kept stored away in our long-term memory, we wake up. Uh, go to work or do what we do the next day and we don't have all that memory recall that we're supposed to have. So it's really, really important. It's one of the foundational things on the brain potential framework model that's essential to feel just safe in your own environment. Six to eight hours for quality sleep. Apart from waking up and feeling tired, how does one know that they're having a poor quality sleep? Um, well, I think there's there's many different things that can happen. Maybe they didn't go down into deep sleep. Um, you, there's sleep apps and things you can get that measure that if you want to. Um, if it really was extreme, I'd, I'd suggest going to professionals and doing a sleep survey where they keep you overnight. But a lot of people just don't get all the way down to deep sleep. They'll get partway down and then come back up again, partway down, come back up again. Um, or they'll wake up and stay awake for a couple of hours during the night. And that's clearly evident that, um, you know, they, they need to get out of bed, get out of that horizontal, get into the vertical, walk around the house and come back into the horizontal again. Sometimes that helps. Um, quality sleep is is just essential. So, I would talk to a, a sleep professional or even start off with your GP if you're not getting quality sleep because it's essential for brain body function. But how does one know that if, if they're so used to being tired that that's normal to them, how else would they be able to identify? So what is the difference between just being tired? You've got a kid, you've got um, work, you're having to get up at 5.30, you've got life stresses, all that sort of stuff. How do you identify I'm just stressed and tired from life compared to I'm not having quality sleep? Um, with all of those things, especially a, a mum with a baby, she can actually function on minimal sleep. It, it's There's different hormone changes in her body that helps her do that. Um, but just the regular stressors of life, I would say if you can do a catch-up sleep on a Friday night um, or Saturday night, if you can have some little nana naps on the weekend and you feel revived and healthy, then that's okay. It's probably just your environment or what you're coping with that's causing this lack of sleep. Um, but you could go to a GP if you really are concerned about your sleep because it's essential. You've got a course for leadership that you're doing at the moment as well. Yes. Explain to me why, A, why you're doing that course and why it's so important for people to be aware from a um, 
would you say it's a psychotherapy awareness or the like um, what's the purpose it? behind the, the leadership course that you're doing it's the leadership course is called brain potential leadership powered by neuroscience and that very person you just described that's got a kid they've got a stressful work life they've they've got a partner they've got to care for could be running um running a business or a leader in a bit a team leader even in a business so what this course does it it first of all it's about understanding yourself so it's understanding brain function in relation to behavior and i mentioned a neuropsychotherapy model that i developed the sun if you can imagine um you know those old greek buildings with the three pillars and the pointy roof thing well the foundation of it is safety, just feeling safe, feeling safe at home, uh, feeling safe in the workplace. And I don't mean physically safe. I mean psychologically safe, feeling comfortable that you're able to speak your mind wherever you are. So at the very base, like beneath the surface, if this building was on the ground, beneath the surface we've got genetics that we can't really do anything much about. It's what parents gave us to environment, which is the environment we grew up in, which also can impact us um, as we move through life, to that foundation of the building, which is safety. There's four factors that feed into the safety. There's quality sleep, nutritional food, lots of water, some form of exercise, and some form of brain relaxation. Now, in the first um, module in that, that's what we work on. And you'd be amazed how many people aren't can't tick off all of those boxes and it might sound the simplest thing to do but working with someone to help them tick the boxes to help them is really the foundation of then moving up the module and then the first two modules as I said working on understanding self and then the, the final two are understanding others so it's looking at other people in the workforce and uh, just because someone's underperforming at the moment doesn't mean you need to sack them or put them on a performance review maybe just ask them what's going on for them because they could have anything going on in their life we we introduce states that i talked about different states of behavior in the workplace we um also in the learning we look at the polyvagal field that we talked about earlier the autonomic nervous system and and helping them with ways to um, identify what's going on for them and how they can change it at any time in their life. Um, then the three pillars on this particular model are connections, motivation, and control. So what sort of connections do they have out there? Helping them establish good workplace connections because uh, it's not just within the workplace, external to the workplace. Motivation where is their motivation at, how do we increase it, what can we do, and control doesn't mean controlling. It's do you have that sense that you um, are in control, you can make good decisions, you can um, you can say what you need to say, you, take, you can have some control over your life until we get up to the peak of the, the roof of the building, which is the self-actualization which is about helping others to get what they want. A lot of workplace things. It's really comprehensive. Um, 
will talk about so many different things for self and then in the workplace and how communication styles, different things such as that can really impact your performance because it changes the architecture of your brain. So people can find this on your website, brain, uh, brainpotential.net. Dot net. That's important. Brainpotential.net. Brain I'll link them in the show notes. Um, also, you've got your book, The Many Parts of You. Where can people find that? You said it's online. Yeah. If you put The Many Parts of You, Jan Sky, um, Understand the Puzzle of Your Behaviour is the subtitle. Um, it'll come up online. I think it might be on Amazon. I know it's on Book Depository, Booktopia, and Balboa Press. So probably go and find the cheapest version of it. <laughs> well, Janet, it's been an absolute uh, delight. I'm going to go and review my um, my food intake, my mindfulness, my sleep patterns, oh. um, you know, everything um that we sort of discussed today and uh yeah i'm i'm thank you very much it's been it's been an absolute joy chatting with you fiona the i am giving away a free ebook called brain basics so if anyone goes to my website i invite them to um, take advantage of getting the book brain basics because it's a lovely visual of what's going on in your brain at different times in your life and in different situations, and it just might help the listeners. Perfect. Thanks, Jan. Lovely speaking with you. My pleasure. Bye, Fiona. Bye. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Bye.